HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Danone North America, the world's largest B Corp, committed to doing all kinds of better for people and the planet. Learn more at DanoneAwayFromHome.com. This week on Meet and 3, we dive into the science behind munchies, the history of coca, the therapeutic powers of psychedelics, and mushroom-infused recipes. One of the biggest questions we get asked a lot is, does heat degrade psilocybin? The coca leaf was used as a sacred plant. So as a plant that could communicate human beings with gods or mother nature. What you can start to appreciate here is that cannabis is activating and hijacking the system throughout the body. Tune in to Meat and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and it is Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. This is the 274th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a terrific entrepreneur who works with independent restaurants and food brands, and I will introduce her fully in a moment. First, as I, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to have a great advisory board. Seek support and guidance from those who you trust and respect for their opinions and expertise. Aim to create a diverse group of people who not only communicate well, but bring invaluable experience and insights to the table, perhaps even with a unique perspective that may challenge your own. Essentially, your advisory board is your sounding board, so make it a good one. That's my tip today. Now I'm excited. My guest today is Elizabeth Tilton. She is the founder and CEO of Oyster Sunday a corporate office for independent restaurants and food brands based in New Orleans and New York City, whose mission is to build a sustainable and supportive infrastructure for the food and beverage industry. 
Prior to launching Oyster Sunday in 2019, Elizabeth was part of the original leadership team and the head of brand at WNP and was the public relations and marketing manager for Momofuku's New York restaurants. She is a graduate of the University of Virginia. And without further ado, I will welcome her to the show. So hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Sherry. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining me. I'm thrilled to chat with you. And uh, yeah, a little envious that um, I'm not down in New Orleans with you. <laughs> but- I know. It is a yeah, beautiful day here. And uh, it's, you know, we, we bear through the summer to get to these days in the winter to have a little reprieve from the heat. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a great day down here. Yeah, and my last times down there, I've been going uh, for, I was at uh, Tales of the Cocktail in July, so um, I'm, I usually am there in that heat, so maybe maybe next time I can get down there, I'll, I'll pick a, a little cooler month. <laughs> Highly recommend it. October and uh, March inside Intel are by far the best months down here, so make it on down. Always have a old-fashioned waiting for you. Oh, fantastic. I can't wait to be able to travel and get down there. So... Let's start out a bit on on your background and how you got into the hospitality industry. Uh, what was what was your initial uh, get go with with working with um, restaurants and hospitality? Yeah, actually, my background started when I was in college. I started a catering company my second year at the University of Virginia, and kind of fell in love with food and beverage prior to that, but just really started to do it on my own time. And I first, I think, thought it was mostly just a hobby or a way to make a little extra cash to keep up with my wine habits. But I think it ended up being a lot deeper than that. And I had a great mentor down in New Orleans and um, ended up going to move down here and cook professionally and kind of right after undergraduate. And I guess a little bit back up a little bit before that, I was actually on my way to um, medical school and decided to go cook instead. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like a little bit, some say it went rogue, but I think there's a, a continuity between caring for people and serving people, in my opinion. And from there, kind of catalyzed my experience in the industry. And it really started back of house down here in New Orleans, both in a commissary kitchen and then in, uh, at Restaurant August in the pastry department there. Um, and ended up staging up in New York at La Bernadette when Michael Lascones was still the pastry chef and kind of, you know, really understood the appeal of New York finally and finally got up there to see it and knew that the transition needed to happen to get up there. But my my first real experience was cooking. Oh, wow. And I I, I think I vaguely knew that, but I wasn't, I didn't realize how, how much you had invested in that at the at the beginning of your career and your transition too. So once you're in New York and and then what led you, I guess, to leave kitchens or and to work with uh, um, WNP or before that, I guess we should go with Momofuku. Yeah, I think, I guess, I guess part of it too is I think any cook has this, you know, you, you sit there, you look at the road and it starts to fork. <laughs> and I think for me, I understood going up to New York. I always had a real big drive towards the business side of the industry and loved it and loved the design and loved operations. And so I kind of decided when moving to New York that if I wanted to cook, I wanted to be the best pastry chef out there. And I was looking at my peers and was like, ah, let's be honest, there's some unbelievably talented talented cooks around me that were going to step up. 
But I knew that my interest was deep and widespread, that I really wanted to learn, again, the operations, the branding, the, and more of the design element. So when it kind of came to looking at opportunities up in New York, I started looking towards management and business and ended up finding, um, uh, I guess not shouldn't say finding, but ended up learning about an opportunity at Momofuku and started, was in a manager at Sambar, um, a floor manager and it was quite, I mean, talk about a crash course in management. I had like 20 days door to floor to get up and running. And I'd never touched a POS system before, um, besides pulling out chits out of a you know kitchen display um, right. printer and, uh, and kind of really had a crash course and what it meant to, I mean, just do service and what the responsibilities were and to be customer facing all the time and to be working on a floor at such a rapid pace. Like Sambar is notorious for being loud and dark and full all the time. And so yeah, it came to, busy. yeah, it's always crazy busy. So when it came to learning management um, with a team that had been there for years, it was really remarkable. And I guess it was my first week after training and Sandy hit uh, New York. So I think I had this moment of, you know, having been to deal with crisis management and shutting a restaurant down and it was Quite, quite a blitz moving to oh, New York. Wow, yeah, because I mean, I was here for Sandy, but I live uptown, and so I remember it being—it was like two different worlds. If you were above Thirty Fourth Street or below, it was—it was just completely different, and you were—you were below. So yeah, I know. I also <laughs> lived half a block away from Sambar, which I never told anyone for a long time because I knew I'd be first on call, and. Um, when the electricity went out, we just call it SOPO, South of Power. Um, wow. And, yeah, I know, I know. And being from New Orleans, I have to say, I mean, we're, we're pretty good at hurricanes or at least know what to do when they come. And I have the most amazing voicemail from my grandmother from that, uh, just being like, who would have thought you have a hurricane coming up to New York? <laughs> you know, I felt the same way. But anywho, all to say, it was a really amazing opportunity to be at Momofuku and then eventually went up to corporate and joined the branding and marketing team. Yeah, can you tell um, us a little about WNP? Because I'm not as familiar with uh, that company as I am, let's say, with um, David Chang's Empire. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, I guess yeah, I guess the transition. I'll, I'll speak real quickly to the transition to WNP because I think it helps paint the picture a little better. But yeah. I moved into corporate at Momofuku and was helping with the marketing in New York, and then really um, spearheading a lot of the programming and international partnerships on behalf of Momofuku. So when they're working with MAD and um, the MAD Symposium and with Sweetgreen and kind of really managing those relationships. And when I kind of going back to the University of Virginia, when I was cooking and had that catering company, I ended up meeting these two founders of another catering company and we cooked together. And they, by chance, are the WP. So Josh Williams and Eric Prum. And when they were expanding their company, which is a culinary design company. So they built hard good prop, um, products, everything from people may have seen the carry-on cocktail kits or the pineapple brass tumblers, which I think are most prevalent in the market. But when they were really starting to expand their team, um, we were in conversation and came on to really support, kind of taking what I learned at Momofuku, understanding product design and, and learning a lot of it on the fly and stepping into this role as the head of marketing, and then eventually the head of brand uh, for that for WMP. And WMP is, um, as I mentioned, it's a product design company, but 
we were doing our own proprietary products and we were totally vertically integrated. So we were doing everything from design all the way through distribution. So if you're learning about supply chain and manufacturing and even just logistics, it's, it was a really a remarkable crash course in that. And by the end of my time, we had put about 300 products out to market and had done our own proprietary products as well as private label work for people like William Sonoma, West Elm, Lucas Films, um, and was really kind of had all these different verticals going to market at the same time. And our depart- my department was really responsible for making both an e-commerce presence all the way through um, wholesale national distribution and supporting the sales team to do so. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. And and thank you also clarifying that it was you were meeting corporate with Momofuku, which which obviously makes sense with uh, that you're working with on on all those different things with public relations and MAD. And um, it's an incredible experience. So did you did you know you wanted to launch your own company and, and be an entrepreneur um, like early on? Or was this something that kind of developed as you were working uh, for these other other businesses? And um, and then what inspired you to to launch and and also name your company Oyster Sunday, which I'm so intrigued by? Oh, yeah, um, I guess I, I get I have to say, I guess I did always have that kind of entrepreneurial um Spark. I mean, everything from, I remember I had this in the fourth grade, I wrote a business plan. I used to be obsessed with coffee, even young, and people would say it stumped my growth, but I'm here in, you know, between about five, eight. So I guess it didn't do too much, but <laughs> I wrote a business plan for a, a company called Java Good Day in the fourth grade. So I think okay. I always had <laughs> some yeah. sort of inclination. Uh-huh. And I, um, I guess, I guess when it came to Oyster Sunday specifically, I, actually wrote the business plan down and started the concept when, in 2012 and sat on it. And it was when I was at Momofuku and stepped up into the corporate office and was able to see, you know, looking at this remarkable office of about 20 and 25 people that managed all of these locations, right? They're supporting every brick and mortar needed support to bring, to really help with the logistics and bring it to life. And once you get to that scale that Momofuku had when I joined in 2012, which was like New York and Toronto and Sydney. And then we're looking at expansion in the United States. It really, what it was, it provides us an extreme economy of scale. It provides, you can have the ear and the access to accountants and bookkeepers and CFOs and head of marketings and so on all under one roof. And the only re- the way you can really get to that scale is if you have enough locations. And I think that's why some independent restaurants will go to a second or third location once they understand a, they have a concept. B, the efficiency and of scale of scale helps. And I was kind of looking at this in my early twenties, and or actually mid twenties at the time, and saying like, why in the world can't a corporate office exist in its own right, and to be brand agnostic and chef agnostic and state, where you can become this independent corporate office and allow any operator um, to have access and to pay for the quantity of time in which they need. And so, again, sat on it for a very long time and started putting it into motion um, in 2018. Started, I'd always been working on it for the years, but I think at that point I felt I had enough under my belt and enough skills, and I would say like tools in the tool belt, that even if I was not the expert, I, underst- I probably was in the room with someone who was and felt that I knew how to fill some of those roles, um, knowing that 
there were people out there in those categories that would be far better experts than I was, um, first to admit it. But that's, that's kind of how the concept came to be. And I decided, I guess, in the end of 2018, I was at the MAD Symposium and met a couple of people and was sitting in this room, having worked in e-commerce and product design for four years and realizing that this is my community and just really hard, just really missing it. And so I think at that point, I knew that the, it was time to go and press, press start on that project. And to answer your question about the name, yeah, I, yeah, it's a kind of funny. So it came from a couple of different angles, but I had this picture of my grandmother um, eating at Acme Oyster House in probably the 19, early 1930s. And everyone, you know, turned her two friends looking so joyful. And I always remembered being a cook and saying like, when I cooked, it was always like oysters and champagne. That was my, that was like my treat to myself at the end of a long week. And if I had the day off, <laughs> if I had a day off and, um, and then when it came to actually working through names, I kept going back to that image. And then I kind of put together the idea of like an operating system as OS, as is Oyster Sunday. So uh, Oyster Sunday to me stands for operating system. Ha. Yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's a fun, it's it's kind of quirky. People remember it, which I guess is also part of branding. It's it's either got to be literal or sticky. And I went with sticky. Yeah, no, it's great and it's fun. And I was thinking, I remember seeing you at the MAD conference too, um, which now seems like so long ago, but I, oh, I, I love that that was like what the, you know, that time that really kind of pushed you to be like, let's launch this. Because um, it, it is, it is, it was such an inspiring couple of days in, in Copenhagen. Um, so, so tell us a bit about your services now that you provide I me. Mean, you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but um, you know, I'm, I was on your website and I was just, it's, you have, you have so many, um, so many resources you're providing for people. And um, it's, I, I'm kind of amazed with the amount of content that you have uh, put together and I guess in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah, we, <laughs> our timing, I don't know if it was helpful or <laughs> crazy to have launched, but um, yeah. I, so in terms of to answer your first question about offerings, we, we kind of looked in two phases. We do a lot. We really help support openings. And then on the, and then the second like kind of tier is that we definitely help with daily operations. So on openings, we're doing everything kind of tapping back into the branding marketing cap that I've worn is we're tapping into concept development and branding, menu development, critical paths and project management, which we'll, I think I'll touch on in a bit when we talk about resources, because I think that if you want to get a glimpse into the brain of our director of projects, her name's um, Jessica Abel, she, I mean, that's indicative of her brain. <laughs> and then when we kick into the second kind of phase of a restaurant's life, when you go into like doors open, we're dealing, you know, we're really helping to maintain brand presence and positioning everything from digital marketing and e-commerce strategy, and then we, and then communications, and then a lot of trainings, a lot of employee handbooks and the HR functions that I think a lot of operators um, tend to rely on previous employee handbooks they have, they're using, but we are able to really build them out, job descriptions, all those kind of HR function. Um, and then data management and technology, which is, well, I mean, if we've learned anything during the pandemic, it's that a digital presence is pretty mandatory. And then finally, it's financial strategy, thinking about really reading P&Ls, thinking about financial growth, benchmarking, burn rates, and helping operators work through those logistics. Yes. Yeah, so with the pandemic, um, I mean, you 
obviously it, it affected you and your business and your model. Do you want, I mean, and, and what you were, what you've been providing for businesses. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that, like the different, the critical path, uh, for independent restaurants and bars that you, that you have and, um, and, uh, and these, and the resources, um, so many resources. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess, um, so in early March, I actually was in New York until March 12th and was decided to, needless to say, to fly home. And by that Monday, I mean, this was the 16th or so, we had kind of, we'd come together as a group over the weekend and knew that by that Monday, we were going to suspend payment to any of our clients, that we were not going to take payment until we figured out what was going on. Because we, I mean, it was the, it was coming down and we knew it was happening and shutdown was happening. So pretty, very quickly, we announced that, publicly as well, that we were going to start doing free consultation to any operator who needed support. Because we had built, I mean, over the course of a year, had audited technology, had built this whole community around us of legal counsel and financial strategists and all these things that we were like, well, we were sitting on this brain trust. Why not? And what you mentioned earlier too, Sherry, about advisory boards, right? I mean, like for sitting on this, like, and we, the one thing that people need right now is knowledge is power. It was the only thing that a lot of us could grasp onto in the midst of the chaos at the beginning of the pandemic. And so over the course of, um, to date, we've talked to over a hundred independent operators nationwide for free, and we're still offering that service. And in that, I mean, when you're talking about the resources, you know, what came to mind is that we kept listening and answering questions. And if we didn't know the answer, we'd find it. And so a lot of our time was spent troubleshooting, trying to f- address questions that we didn't know yet. Um, and then once we found out, we felt, again, that knowledge is power. And the only the thing that we could do is to, is to publish it. And I felt like a lot of organizations and a lot of a lot of the information that was floating around, particularly in March, were more about who was shutting down and what they were offering, but wasn't really informing or helping to support independent operators with like informed decisions about what is what is on the table. What does furlough lay- versus layoff mean? What where do I find a layoff? Like a lay, you know, any sort of documentation. What's the right you know, order of operations to make that come to life? And then how do you pivot to a digital platform? And none of that was really being um, chatted about and kind of everyone was doing in their own silo. So we felt resources would be a really powerful tool for us to bring and make public. And the independent, I mean, the um, critical path that you brought up specifically was one that when it came to, this is back in April, we were like, okay, so if we're shutting down, we still have to reopen at some point. We don't know when it's going to happen. We don't know how it's going to look. But if we, the thing that we always go back to Oyster Sunny as a company is saying, what are the business fundamentals? And in that, we addressed these like very tangible, task-oriented to-dos per every department and sat, and sat on every, like all of our team and every department sat down and said, what is, your, what is the order of operations to open doors again? Um, and so we published that in um, April during a seminar, we announced it or launched it during a, a seminar with the James Beard Foundation, and then made it public and free. Yeah, well, it's 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 really wonderful that that you you have done that, and it's so detailed and it's so helpful uh, for businesses uh, that, that it's um, and and I don't know anyone else who who did step up to do that. So it's amazing that you and your team did that. Uh, what who how how many people are a part of 
your team. And and I have to also say my tip uh, was inspired a bit by your advisory board because I you have incredible people that <laughs> are a part of it. And um, I think it's great that, you know, to, to, to have that as a sounding board, as I had said in my tip. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I know. I think as a sole founder, I never really intended to be that by any means. And and I think that the one thing I never want to live in an echo chamber. Um, and, and I felt like building an advisory board in the beginning was really important. So that was almost set up before, as now the team has grown, so we're much bigger. But in the beginning, that was established upon the launch of the company. But yeah, I'm very lucky for, for them to be, um, you know, support for the team. But right now we're nine people um, that are working with Oyster Sunday. And then we have about a network of you know, about 35 independent contractors that we're able to tap into based off experience and expertise. And that's everything from graphic designers and specific web developers um, all the way down to, you know, uh, accountants. It kind of runs the gamut, but I would say our, the core team right now is nine and we're a fully remote team. We were built that way from the inception since 2012. It was always built meant to be that and fully digital. So we are able to really, I always think of it as call it the round table um, as our, for the core team. And it was always meant to be, you know, really filling those seats with the people that are the experts in their field. And, you know, I consider myself like to be like the conductor where I kind of hear when the pitch is right and I can see it. And I've sat next to the first chair cellist was definitely was never that person. (laughs) And um, when I find them, I'm like, come join us. Um, And so it's, we've been unbelievably lucky to have such a remarkable team. Yeah, that's awesome. Who are some of the clients you're working with now? Yeah, so we're coast to coast um, on our clients. We're currently working um, with 16 restaurants and um, as well as two CPG brands. But we are everything we in the New York area. We're um, we've been working with Via Crota and Isodi and the Bouvet team and. Um, down in New Orleans, we've worked with Addis Nola, which is an Ethiopian restaurant, and a, a group, uh, a collection of restaurants here called LeBlanc and Smith that owns Sylvain and Canaan Tape, I'm sorry, Cavan and um, Longway Tavern, and then most recently, a, a hotel opening called The Chloe that we helped open, and Bell's Restaurant in Los Alamos, California, and some CPG brands. Uh, this is just a little, also actually Milu in New York as well. Yeah, then, actually, I had I had well, I'd say lunch. It was kind of like breakfast, lunch, dim sum um, at Milu, and uh, and met Vincent Chow. Is that nice. I think I say his last name? Um, yeah. And and um, and your name came up that you were working with them, so I was excited. Yeah, they're remarkable. I mean, I'm I'm so I see all these food images coming through, and I'm yet to go eat there. But it'd be high, probably f- number one on my list when I move when I get up to New York again, um, as soon as I can travel. Yeah, but yeah, they're a remarkable team. Um, and then we also work with some beverage companies, including Shaxbury and uh, Virgin's Vermont, a cider company up there. So it's yeah, we're kind of and it runs, and we're looking at some openings for 2021. So stay tuned on that as well. Wow. Amazing. So let me ask you my question for my last guest on episode 273. I had on Ben Checkroon. He's the general manager at Blue Point Hospitality Group, which is in Easton, Maryland. And he's formerly the longstanding maitre d' at La Bernadette in New York City. And when you were talking earlier about staging there, I'm like, 
he was he must have been there because so funny <laughs> yeah yeah he's been there I think he was there for like 27 years oh um, so uh his question was what and and how do you think the restaurant industry will be different post-covid um just looking looking into the future a little bit yeah I mean I feel like I think the one thing I always go back to is that well, a couple of things. The first one is that we are in a pressure cooker that we're and in that, you know, we're just, it's catalyzing all this change so quickly. If I go back to my science terms, but um, you know, we're, we're really, we're seeing it through adaptation of the customer. We're seeing it through technology. We're seeing it through labor, the cost of goods, supply chain, all of this, right? So we're seeing this compressed that I would say what would have been five years of progress consolidated into eight months. And I think that, in my opinion, the consumer has outpaced us. Their adaptation for QR codes and digital digital consumption of content and of ordering and the expectation of extending one's own brand and hospitality to being around Zoom meetings, I think we're as an industry, I think some, most would assume we're pretty analog. I think we're, we're lucky to have progressed so much technolo- technology-wise in the last five years to having, in the advent of having cloud-based POS systems and inventory. But I think that's internal. And I think our proficiency and understanding of our digital presence is going to be more relevant and more crucial than ever because when you're thinking about how you find new customers, how they're finding you, if they're not on the, if they're not, if they have to be more premeditating how they, what they're eating all the time, because they want the, to reduce the mystique of where they're eating. I think how we express ourselves through digital is be so, so crucial. Um, and that's also, that's kind of one side of it. And the other side is diversifying revenue streams, right? I mean, we, yeah. You know, I mean, an, a business plan that assumes 85% occupancy on a Tuesday in New York City is no longer viable. And it has to be offset by alternative rent structures and agreements, e-commerce, uh, digital events, whatever that's going to be in the meantime. Because even if they aren't always relevant or they're not as big of a percentage of your business, they're going to make up a big percentage if this ever happens again, which as a global economy and a global people, it likely will. And so I think that we don't want history to repeat itself. We want to be prepared next time. So I think post COVID it's going to be consumers are ahead of us. We got to catch up. And, and I think the last kind of the last part is we have to be data driven, controlling your information and understanding your customers through who they are is going to be, um, you know, it's, it's really, really important. And we've given so much data away to technology such as third-party delivery services that we never had access to and we never will, and we're left in the dark. And I think it's going to be operators understanding to pull that back in and to, to, to control their data in a way in which they understand their cash flow and their labor model. They're going to have to understand it. Yeah, well, great answer. I I think I think you you hit on a lot of really important points there. And um, I think you're right. So we shall see. And it was a, it was a big question from him. And I love I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 I know. I know. I, I well, you're going to get your turn at the end of the show. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like share the work you're doing with project, you know, tell story, being able to be a voice and an amplifier for people, for all these operators into the world to, to talk about what they're doing. I mean, that's such a crucial part of a digital presence. So, you know, kudos to all the support you've provided for independent restaurants along the way as well. Uh, thank you so much. I've, I've felt very grateful that I've had my podcast and this platform to, to be able to talk with people. And that's exactly it. Just I want to help get information out there and share stories because I feel that, that it's helpful. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. glad I've been able to do it and appreciate you saying that. So on that note, let's take a little break uh, and we will come back and we'll play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news. We'll have my solo dining experience and the final question. So stay with us. This is All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. Every time your customers eat and drink, they vote for the world they want to live in. And as the world's largest B Corp, to know North America helps people vote for a better world with all kinds of better dairy, coffee, and plant-based products sourced and produced transparently. To know North America has the brands people know and love, like International Delight, Oikos, Silk, So Delicious Dairy Free, Horizon Organic, and Stoke Cold Brew Coffee. But Danone North America represents more than just in-demand brands and better-for-your-business products. They bring their B Corp certification to life in ways that protect the environment and communities by utilizing 100% renewable electricity sources to produce their products at their manufacturing facilities, committing $6 million to programs that restore the soil's ability to capture and sequester carbon, helping to restore more than 7.8 billion gallons to freshwater ecosystems through their water partnerships over the past decade, and committing to 100% reusable, recyclable, and compostable packaging by 2025. Learn how you can choose better at DenoneAwayFromHome.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guest today is Elizabeth Tilton. She's the founder and CEO of Oyster Sunday, which is a corporate office for independent restaurants and food brands. So, Elizabeth, it is time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. Okay. <laughs> ready? <laughs> okay. I am ready. Here we go. Eat in or eat out? Eat out. Wine, beer, cocktail, non-alcoholic beverage, champagne, and throwing in there for you, cider. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to go with champagne. Okay. Um, yeah, every, this, my list keeps getting longer the longer I do this show. <laughs> I love that. Okay, these are shorter ones. How about um, tasting menu or a la carte? A la carte. Small plates or large plates? Small plates. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? Oof. As long as all-inclusive is 20% or above. <laughs> yes, I'm, okay. then I'm okay with it. 
I like that. Po' boy or muffaletta? Po' boy, definitely. <laughs> I got another one like that. How about raw oysters <laughs> or roasted oysters? Raw. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese plate. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or New Orleans? Ooh. <laughs> God, that's like the great divide right there. Um, I'm I'm gonna have to say New Orleans now because I made the move, you know, and and moved down here after living in New York. So I'm gonna stay with New Orleans. You made the move. It's a good I did. move. Yeah, <laughs> it, it really is one of my favorite cities. I mean, I don't think there's anything quite quite like it. Yeah, I do think New Orleans and New York are very kindred spirits because they're both un- like unapologetic of who they are. You know, mm. they're very different people in personalities, yeah. but they're very unapologetic. Yeah. I've never, I mean, that's a good comparison. I, um, and true. So, uh, okay. So for industry news, uh, I picked out two articles that are similar and they're both powerful. Uh, they're written by restaurateurs, uh, that, that we know, um, about the state of restaurants with COVID and, and, basically how we need this Restaurants Act to pass. Um, so the first one is was on McSweeney's, and it was entitled Wanted, Restaurant Savior, No Experience Necessary by Kevin Bame. He is a James Beard award-winning restaurateur, the co-founder of the Independent Restaurant Coalition. His restaurant group is Boca Restaurant Group, and um, he was on my show back on episode 252. So this I mean, this piece, I, I mean, was, I mean, I say powerful, but it's like hard to read this. And, and uh, you know, he's talking about how devastating the pandemic has been on the hospitality industry at, with no fault of its own. And really, there's there's been no help um, except for uh, a, like a Band-Aid fix with the PPP. And there's this plea out, you know, it felt there, we need the Restaurants Act to be passed. And basically what, what Kevin was saying in this piece and... Um, uh, I don't know. It's like, I, I just, I, I just want to help. And <laughs> I think I'm hoping sharing this article and his story, these stories will help. Yeah. What a power. I mean, it's powerful and gut-wrenching at the mm-hmm. same time. You can hear, I mean, and he's, and I think too, to, for all the work that Kevin and Camilla Marcus and all of these remarkable humans have done to put the IRC together, because before we were this collection of pirates nationwide pirates that had no talking to each other. We, I mean, we knew each other and we were like, we're, that's what we do. We're hospitality. But this is the first time we had a collective voice bartering on our behalf in a, in governance in a way in which that was the, was so necessary. And what's so hard about listening and reading this article is he's completely right. I think his point that restaurants broadly are the, you know, the second largest employer in the United States, private mm-hmm. employer, and there's nothing, yeah, there's nothing he alludes to mortgages. I mean, you know, all of like Fannie Mae and airline bailouts and, and we're sitting there and saying, you know, we've, it's just so hard because the, the RC is so necessary and I just wish it had happened sooner. So we had a, a bigger seat at the table to negotiate, you know, and it's just, it's just so painful to, to know that the, the ears of, you know, lobbyists and it's just, yeah, it's gut wrenching. Yeah, I know. We're eight months in and and just waiting. And actually, the line that's there was a line that stuck out with me the most. Um, he says, 
Maybe it's not a hero we need at all, but simply someone inspired enough by the heroes that already exist. And he was yeah. referring to the industry being that full of heroes in, in hospitality. Um, and I don't know, I read that line and I was like, wow, that that is something. It's like we just need someone just to, to see us. And I, I say, I do feel very connected in this industry. It's like I'm in it with it all of these restaurants and um, someone to see us and, and, and help. Yeah. And I think the hard part too, is that we, as an industry, it's, it's hospitality, right? We're, we're spent all of our time being, you know, in the shadows to provide people's experience, to have their own experience all the time. And then all of a sudden we're, you know, it's just such a, it's such a flip to what hospitality is for many is to be, loud and in the face and all these things. And all of a sudden we have to, we have to advocate for ourselves. And it, it, yeah, I think his article was so pointed. And I, I can't recall the exact sentence right now, but he had this one saying the one line as well about how, if, you know, if you need a reservation, you'd be calling me, you know, it's just like, yeah, you know what, if you need a favor right. and you eat, and then when you leave the restaurant, we're, we're left behind. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he ended it saying like, um, you know, he's asking people to do the right thing to pass the restaurants act. So um, let's, let's hope they, let's hope uh, they can uh, soon, soon. Uh, and cause the other article was on Bon Appetit and uh, this was entitled, I'm afraid it's not, I'm afraid it's too late to save restaurants. And this was written by chef Edward Lee, who's a restaurateur, who's, um, also, uh, uh, he's, you know, he noted how, he, well, he kind of had two sides of his story where he's had to close his restaurants, which he has, um, in Louisville and also Washington, DC, but he started this initiative, uh, called the Lee initiative, which launched the restaurant workers relief program and has been serving, uh, more than a million meals to industry employees across the country. And it's incredible. Uh, this initiative he started has been extremely successful, yet the, his restaurants have closed. And so he kind of has both sides of this, of, of the coin or different, you know, one thing's doing really well, but he's really sad about indep his independent restaurants, which um, is uh, he's concerned about for the future of, and I think we all are. Yeah. And I think one thing that, you know, we keep talking about, and I think it was originally as an, an oyster center, we keep talking about as and it, we thought about in the beginning because we we're like, okay, so if there's no travel and independent restaurants are, you know, they're on lists and people come travel to them. What do they have to do? They have to feed their lo hyper local community. And I think that, you know, Chef Lee's point about losing your independent restaurant and then becoming basically mass, your mass feeding program at this point mm -hmm. and that restaurants are stepping into this gap, this, this huge gap between snap program that are, you know, federally and state state funded and restaurants and consumption. And we have, there's going to be even more disparity in food insecurity that's going to happen in the United States. And I think the more, you know, restaurants can, f and I think feeding people is our superpower. And I think the more looking at what had the Lee foundation looking at, you know, feed the Valley by the bells team out in Los Alamos, California, people are learning or building infrastructure to feed more people for less. And I think that it's interesting that it's falling on restaurants and restaurateurs and chefs and not more state or federal funded 
programming. But I, at the same time, I think that we're going to have this kind of community that wants to pay five bucks for a meal or 10 bucks for a meal, but can't pay 25. And I think that the, there can be benefits to independent restaurants to understand that scale because right now who's feeding that community is fast food and you drive down, you know, drive down veterans in New Orleans and there's lines out, out the wazoo for Chick-fil-A and which might be preference of food consumption. But at the same time as we can't, we also have to weigh in the fact that maybe it's price point. Yeah. He, he talked about that in his piece talking about the, you know, McDonald's, how there's 20 cars lined up and um, yeah. And, and, you know, with what you're touching on, I mean, like the work of Jose Andres and yeah. it's uh, it's, I don't know. Both of these pieces were, I, I think they're, they're important reads for people um, just to, to get in, you know, these, these, you know, Kevin and Ed are both um, very well respected restaurateurs and um, they're, they're, it's the, a reality, a reality check of what's happening. So um, I don't know. I, I, I'm just, I, I'm hopeful for our industry. I, I want I want us to get through this, but um, it's it's trying times for sure. Yeah, and I think I like, and I totally agree. And I'm glad you put these both in my radar share. Is like, there? I mean, I read them, and I was just I, so taken back by both. You know, I had like a moment after I was like, I just need a moment of silence <laughs> to process both these articles, and they're completely to your point worth well worth the read. And but I, same breath, I feel like I'm personally a bleeding optimist and I think we'll push through this funnel and it's going to look very different the other end but I really hope if anything as a silver lining comes out of this that we're able to find alternatives and changes to things you know to how we feed people and how we treat them and how we compensate them and um so so in the future I think one thing that you know Chef Lee was saying is that the ability to pivot so difficult and I, can't, I hear him. It really is. And I hope we learn things to have more, I guess, options in the future. It's the only thing I can, I'm grasping onto. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. So all the best, best to everyone. Okay. So for my solo dining experience this week, um, I went, I went to an institution that has lasted a long time. So maybe this, this is giving us a little more hope that we can get through things. Um, so I went to Barney Greengrass so here's the rundown. The location, 541 Amsterdam Avenue near 87th Street on the Upper West Side in New York City. The concept is a Jewish deli institution since 1908. It's known for smoked fish and its slogan is the Sturgeon King. So the owner is Gary Greengrass. He's the grandson of Barney. Why did I go? Well, because I love bagels and lox enough stead. My experience. So on a recent Saturday, um, I went up, it was in the afternoon, I guess, a kind of a late brunch for me. Um, I biked up there. I'm not that far away. Uh, there wasn't, there wasn't a line. They had outdoor seating. Um, some people were, were se- seated outside and also they were doing 25% inside seating, but I was going for takeout. So I went inside. Uh, I found my guy behind the counter. I got what I wanted to get. I actually, when you're there, you have to get your savory items at one side and go to the, the bakery counter to get the sweet items. And I did get something sweet. So I did that and then I paid and I went to the park and ate. So what did I get? I got smoked salmon on an everything bagel with cream cheese, tomato, and onion. I also got a third of a pound of sable fish, and I had a black and white cookie. 
So my take, it's so good. It's just, there's a reason why this restaurant's been around for a very long time. Um, and and seriously, bagels and lots is one of my favorite things to eat. Um, I had half the sandwich, a little of the, and probably half the sable and probably half the cookie. I did halves of everything and had everything for leftovers the next day, uh, the rest of it. So the ambiance, so this is a no frills deli with an old school style counter and chalkboards. And then I went to the park uh, by the Hudson River and I ate outside, which was nice. It wasn't that cold yet here. Uh, I say it's perfect for Jewish deli food cravings. Interesting tidbit. So 112 years later, Barney Greengrass still is cash only, no credit cards. Um, I was glad I had like my secret 20 <laughs> in my wallet because I usually don't have that much cash. But um, personal fun fact, uh, if anyone asked me for, you know, that that question of what would be one of your last meals and I would throw in uh, bagels and locks in it. As I said, I love it that much. Uh, the cost of this meal was $42, not including tax and gratuity. Would I go back? Yes. And their website is barneygreengrass.com. There we go. Have you ever, have you been up there before, Elizabeth? I never have. And it's always on my list when I lived in New York, but I never made it. Well, you're, I have a feeling you'll be back one day. <laughs> yeah, I think theoretically splitting my time between the cities. So yes, I'll be back as soon as travel yeah. safe. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good one. It's worth a visit. So, okay. So my next guest is... Leo Robichek, and he is the vice president and of food and beverage at the Seidel Group. He's formerly from uh, the bar director at the Nomad. So, Elizabeth, uh, for the final question, uh, can you ask a question for Leo? I was thinking about it, knowing he was Max, and I was like, "Oh man!" But I think the one question I actually really want to ask him is: Everyone's saying that hotel buffets are dead, right? They're gone forever. What's mm -hmm. next? How in the world, like what, what, how do you make hotel hospitality unique when collisions? Cause I think the thing the Seidel group does so well is that it's this kind of this, every public space is about collision and unique service. And, and I'm just intrigued to see what they do when, you know, you, you want to know who your neighbor is and the mystique isn't, isn't as desired. And so my, my thought is always, goes to for food service, how is it changing? And then how does the Seidel group create an ambiance um, when travel is light and people are wanting less mystique? Cool. I will find out. I mean, I'm, I'm familiar with Seidel group because I was doing some work with the restaurant properties um, or the restaurants at their property, the line hotel in DC. And, okay. um, and actually, I, I was out in Las Vegas a couple years ago, or maybe it was just a year ago. I don't know. Um, and I stayed at the Nomad, and I ran into Leo out there. So <laughs> um, it was it was really cool. But yeah, I wonder how they're going to... I was When you were asking your question, I was thinking about Vegas and um, particularly like... And just all their properties. It's, um, it's a good question, and I will find out, see what he has to say. Thank so. you. Yeah, I'm intrigued. I'll tune in. Cool. Well, that's the show. Thank you so much for joining me. And I wish you the best uh, continued success with your career and your company. I, I'm, I'm pretty much in awe of everything that you've done so far. So, Thank you. So um, much. <laughs> Thank you. 
You're welcome. I, and if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. And uh, I do hope we can share a meal together at some point, whether it's here or, or down there. We'll make an excuse for you to get down to New Orleans. But I, again, thank you so much for the time and um, the really great questions today. I appreciate it. Oh, you're very welcome. So thank you. My guest today has been Elizabeth Tilton. She's the founder and CEO of Oyster Sunday, which is a corporate office for independent restaurants plus food brands. And their mission is to build a sustainable and supportive infrastructure for the food and beverage industry. You can check out her website. It's oystersunday.com and follow on social media at Oyster Sunday and at Elizabeth Tilton. And you can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, and at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My website's BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and AllInTheIndustry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We're also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks to my engineer today, Amanda Wang, and thanks again to Elizabeth. And I also want to give thanks to Danone North America for supporting our show this season. Very grateful. So, as you know, I'm Sherry Bayer, and guess what? This is going to be my last show for 2020 because we're going to be going on winter break. So, my next show with Leo will be after the, the new year on Wednesday, January 13th. Till then, have a wonderful holiday season and happy new year. Stay safe and well, and thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.